<sighs> okay. Welcome everyone to Faded Mates. I'm Sarah McLean. I write romance novels. I read romance novels. And I'm Jen Reads Romance. I mostly read romance novels, as you can tell from my very clever Twitter name. <laughs> That's true. It's very, it's on point. It is. It's on so brand. It's very simple. It's to the point. I like it. I don't question who you are or why you're in my feed. Or what I do or what I'm good at. Uh, you guys, it's happening. Pleasure of a Dark Prince is here. We're starting a whole new movement of Immortals After Dark. Lothar is here. Nyx is crazier and crazier. Yes. This is getting... We're in the Amazon. <laughs> we're I... getting to what uh, Sierra Simone refers to as the full Cressley. <laughs> well, and I'm going to tell you, I had my friend... Okay, so like best friend Kelly, right? She texted me and she's like, look... I'm a little afraid of you and Sarah continuing to refer to these upcoming books as Torture Island. (laughs) Kate Claiborne, too, is like, I'm going to need some content warnings on what's to come. And I'm like, Kate, it's Torture Island. I mean, that's your content warning. (laughs) Well, you know what, though? It's worth us talking a little bit, and it doesn't have to be at the beginning. But I would like to talk about world building and why I think Movement 2 has to happen. And and I think maybe preview a little bit of why Movement 3 has to happen. Because we have had some questions about that. Yeah, this is good. This is a good time for us to talk about, like, how an author builds a continuing series. Yes, let's do that. So last episode, the novella episode, we talked a lot about how um, we had really spent the first X number of books. I should probably know that now. Six books um, in... Um, the what is essentially like Roth Brothers slash Amazing Race, right? Yes. And then we talked about how um, Untouchable is the novella is really a, in my mind, a way that Cressley is exploring where she might be going next, and sort of laying the groundwork for the way she's about to blow up the world of IAD or blow out the world of IAD into something much 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 bigger than four vampires and a bunch of people on a reality tv show very very quickly this book actually is what's fascinating about it though is it starts concurrently Mm -hmm. essentially with a hunger like no other and it tells the story of lachlan's brother gareth who is basically really pretty convinced his brother is never coming back but still holding that like kernel of hope in his heart gareth is the spare right yeah. Lachlan was oh, yeah. the heir to the Lycae kingdom. He's been trapped in eternal flames. He, What Gareth doesn't know is that he's currently gnawing off his leg <laughs> to get yes. up, <laughs> chewing off his own foot to get up to Emma. Gareth is the spare who has never been intended. I mean, he, he, he's always been in line for the throne, but he has never wanted it. And this, no. I love a spare story, like a... And this is a really classic trope in romance novels, too, that she sets up and then blows up, of course, because she's Cressley. Um, but so Gareth is everybody treats him like he's the king. Right. And he does not want that. I mean, because he loves his brother and doesn't want his brother to be dead, but also because he doesn't want it. Well, so it's really interesting because especially with these past couple books where you realize that they're essentially all happening at the same time, it's a lot clearer that this is essentially like the big bang of the accession, right? Like all of these, yeah, like faded mates pairings are essentially happening more or less simultaneously. So big bang. Good. That's very clever. 
I thought so. <laughs> um, I'm like, oh, thank you. Why? That's very. There's kind a of lot you. of banging. Yeah, <laughs> it's a big bang. <laughs> Lots of banging. Um, it's a. It's what's it? A double entendre. It is. It's very good. It's perfect. Okay. You did very um, well there, English teacher. Oh, thank you. Your, I was like, not bad. Your middle schoolers would be giggling. Um, and then I would like follow it up by saying fart, and it would all be fine. Here's the thing, though. So he spies. He's like playing rugby. It's like it's so broy. Oh yeah. Well, what I love about the werewolves is that Cressley doesn't shy away from the fact that they are like part dog, right? <laughs> There's a lot about them that's very primal, far more primal than we get with either demons or vampires. Like they're uncontrollable in a way they're they're dogs well and it's interesting because i we're going to talk a lot about how like earthy and like sexual they are and how i think that really plays out in this plot in a way that's really interesting but he spies lucia the archer across the way and the instinct right it's very different than a vampire which it's a blooding right in in the like eight's instinct essentially is like that's her well he smells her just like lachlan does and it's kind of amazing because he's caught the ball or he has the ball and he's mm-hmm. running for, I don't know, if is it a goal in rugby? I don't know what it is. It's sports. And he's running, um, though I would say like probably one of the hotter sports. <laughs> yeah, for sure. R- really like rough. Like you walk away from rugby bleeding and I like that. But he's <laughs> running toward like the goal or the wherever. And um, and he's, he, he just smells her. Like and the, yeah. the paragraph is so beautiful because it's like he smells this delicious thing over like the cut grass and the like yes. the like New Orleans swamp and like the humidity that's hanging in the air and suddenly there's just like this burst of fresh beautiful scent and he knows instantly holy shit this is happening like this is it's happening yeah <laughs> code absolutely. red and he says in the text like there's this moment where he thinks to himself like I'd always been told, like, we've been prepared, werewolves are prepared our whole lives for this moment. Like, we li- we basically just live until we smell our mates. Like, yes. and, then, and then we're alive after that. And he's been prepared this whole, his, for his whole life for this, and he's heard about it for his whole life, but it never, nothing anybody could say to you would prepare you for what it is when you smell your mate, finally. And then all his, like, Broy dog friends <laughs> leap upon him, <laughs> or I mean, I guess they're demons, like, no. but like suddenly, like the yeah. dogs and the demons are just like after each other. What's interesting then is like the the impediment to their like happiness is that she, I mean, spoiler alert, fine. She was lured out of Val- Valhalla as a sixteen year old by a um what she thinks is like a handsome young man and he turns out to be really a spoiler it's chapter one yeah that's true but it turned well that married yeah i guess so it turns out that um he is essentially the god of cannibalism kruok yeah he's super gross yeah super gross and he like she essentially leaves valhalla you know her parents make her swear she's not going to do it and she does it anyway um she ends up in his like death cave full of like bodies and dismemberment where she is essentially raped by him and in order to escape she like hurls herself off this cliff and is rescued by a goddess and she essentially i'm gonna stop you she's not rescued by this goddess yet oh yeah that's regan who will come in who has been around in the past and will have one of the most contentious books of the series ultimately regan is 
Lucia's best friend and yes. sister. And these two are, I mean, I think it's, I, I want to get to talking about the two of them, but Regan takes her like broken and bloody because she's not immortal yet. She is going to die and Regan won't allow it. And she takes Lucia to the goddess. Now keep going. So the go- essentially the, the deal that Lucia makes is for the promise of sort of immortality, I, I will pledge my not virginity, because she's not a virgin any longer, but my chastity to you. And in return, she is given essentially the gift of archery. And so then for a thousand years, she's chased, but also the world's best archer. And I really also want to talk about this book as being about working women. Oh, I want to talk about that too. That's on my list. Look at us. Yeah, I know. And so it's a so that's like a really compelling plot plot because of course gareth is like doesn't she won't reveal kind of why they can't be together but she's like yeah i can't be with you i i can't be with anyone one of the things i found myself thinking about as i was reading this is that something sabine and lucia have in common is that they are truly tortured by like bad men in their pasts in a way that like okay you could argue that like emma and mariketta are treated badly by their mates but both Sabine and Lucia have this really terrible treatment, like like traumatic, right, treatment. And then I was thinking about, like, well, what comes next? Caro, who, argue, well, she's in Torture Island. She's a little bit of an outlier. Then I think what this really all leads up to is Regan, who is terribly tortured by her fated mate, although he doesn't really know it's him. Like, we'll talk about that later. Yeah. And I think what it really all leads up to is Lothair, because I think Lothair is someone who is essentially treating his mate really badly, but in current time. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things the arc has to do, like, right, like you can't just have an 18 book series where everything's equal. It runs out of steam and people aren't interested. Mm-hmm. You're doing the same thing. You have to like ramp up. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that the ramp up happens is that we are essentially being taught by Cressley that bad things can happen to heroines too. Yeah, that's really powerful. That's I think you are you are 100% right. I also think we are starting to see Cressley. I think we're starting to see two other things. One is I think we're starting to see Cressley be really overt about her views on women in the oh, world. Absolutely. Uh, like I think in the earlier movement, the first movement, I felt there is no question in my mind that this entire series is a feminist anthem, for lack of a better term. Um, I don't think there's any series that I don't think you could put these Valkyries in any book and not wear your heart on your sleeve. But I think in this book, we're starting to act. I was highlighting, I was marking so many passages where I was like, this is an overt political statement. And it's very different from like Marikettas, right? It's not like we haven't seen echoes of this before. My job's important and you're not no, going to take no, no, it no, away no, from me. This different. is it's very different. Magnitudes different. Well, what started, it's interesting because what I have a whole theory on this in, in the history of romance. I'm going to just do it now because we're sort of going all over the place, but why not? Um, but at this point, listeners are with us. They know. <laughs> they know. I hope so. So, um, this book was published in 2010 alongside another book 
that we all know and love, Fifty Shades. So, um, and during that time, so 2010 is a really interesting time in the world. We were coming off a major or in the midst of certainly feeling the effects of a massive recession in the United States. Right. And it was a recession that people were calling a he session because men were losing jobs at a higher rate than women. Because obviously, well, for lots of reasons, not the least of which is women make 80 cents on the dollar. So they were cheaper to keep than men. Sure. So a lot of families that were potentially two income families in, say, 2007 were now single income families with the, I was going to say heroin, and it's apt, with the um, wife or female partner as primary breadwinner. Which led us to, I think, it sort of made the world very ripe for Fifty Shades, for a hero who was a billionaire, who was um, powerful and, and rich, and who could make sure that your bills were paid and your car was, you know, upgraded. And your, he, Christian literally purchases the company that Anna works for so that she can have a great job experience. And he makes sure there's food in her house and he makes sure she gets daily orgasms like he's he takes care of her in a thousand different ways. And so there is a sort of very, in my mind, there's a very clear correlation between or clear connection between like where we were economically as a country and why Christian Grey became a sort of talisman for re- romance readers. Because that sort of fantasy of being taken care of, it's really hard because women were, yeah. not only were women going to work 40 hours a week, 50 hours a week, 60 hours a week, maybe working three jobs, right? right? They were also coming home and doing emotional women's work, making sure there was food right. on the table, making sure there was a like, uh, the kids were getting their homework done. Making doctor's appointments, like, right. None of that goes away when you're primary breadwinner. And so having a Christian Grey would be great. So we, if we set that aside, right, like you've now heard Sarah's view of Fifty Shades, like why it existed, why it worked, um, and why it was a a product of a time. What Cressley is doing at the exact same time is the reverse. What she's doing is vocalizing the worry in like a weird way. Like she's saying, yeah, women are working and that work is valuable and that work is important and that work is terrifying in some way. Yeah. And the biggest fear Lucia has is not, she doesn't doubt her own ability to get things done. What she really dislikes is his thinking that her work is not important or that she could just give it up, right? Like over and over and over again in this book, she says things like, I knew you'd say that. You knew you'd say I could just give it up. I, I knew you'd think it wasn't important. I knew you'd say you could take care of me when I can take care of myself. Mm hmm. And it's a really interesting dichotomy, I think, because it really raises sort of a, the alpha male is a protector. Mm -hmm. But how does that face off against a strong woman who has a lot of personal responsibilities that she either can't or won't or doesn't want to turn over to someone else? Yeah. That clash, you know, I mean, it's not her chastity she clings to. No, it's her it's purpose. It's her archery. Her it's purpose. her purpose. And the whole time they're on the boat in the Amazon, from the moment she sees him running toward her on the dock, she's yeah. like, shit, he is going to ruin this. I have to save the world. I kept thinking, like, literally, I cannot say enough. I looked 
back at the copyright page at that moment. And I was like, wait, when is this happening? Because this is clearly, it's a metaphor for the world that we are all, like women were living and still, frankly, still are living, right? Like I have to save the world has always been in the vo- in the mouth of men but the yeah. reality is in, like male characters throughout time have been the world savers but the reality is, is that on the on a daily basis in our regular lives it's women who save the world again and again lucia is all of us and i think it's anyone whose responsibility is towards family and home and hearth And it's ironic, I thought, and sad that that's what she wanted. It's what lures her out of Valhalla, the promise of children and a husband and a hearth. And then it's the one thing that she has to, like, give up. Also, for, for many people, work becomes a kind of replacement if your family or home life not just women right anyone yeah I think there are people for whom work becomes a kind of replacement for if if you aren't happy at home for whatever reason if you don't have a family if you didn't want a family if you couldn't have a family and and I think that's also very American in a way the way our identities are so tied to our work yeah this book levels up the series for me because and I do think I didn't even get to my second thought on the second movement, but I also, I want to say craft-wise, there's something interesting that happens here too, which is the first 100 pages of this book happen concurrently with the first movement of IAD, and then you turn the page and there's a new chapter and it says one year later. One year later. And you, mm-hmm. we've never seen that from her before. Skipping ahead in time at all in romance is very rare. They kind of do it a little bit in Untouchable, right? It's like they're in Siberia for months, but there's still some, they're together. There's some description of that time, but not boom, a year later. Exactly. Skipping ahead, skipping ahead in time in romance is rare, period, because we don't, we don't want them on hold. You don't want them on hold. You want to see them together and you want the breath. It, It immediately takes, in many cases, or in the hands of a much lesser author, um, it takes the winds out of the sails of the romance. It's like that old movie, The Cooler. Did you ever see that no. movie? It's a movie about uh, a guy who works in a casino. And if like the tables are really hot, he can just like walk by and like cool off a table. Like his very what? vibe. I'm getting that. It's Robert H. Macy. Is that his name? William H. Macy? William H. Macy. You know. Is he magic? You know, it's, he's sad from oh. what I remember. It, from what, again, it's been a long time since I've I'm seen gonna it. I'm going to watch that this week. It's almost, from what I remember, like his personal sadness kind of infects people almost. Mm-hmm. Now, again, it's been a long time since I've seen it. But yeah, like she's putting them literally in the cooler for a year. And we as readers are like, what's been going on? And also, I think this is a moment where readers, so Cressley knows she has her IED readers. They're in her pocket with her. They're coming on this journey with her. And there is a moment of immense reader trust that's expected here that it's like just trust me you don't need to know what happened yeah. in the last year that's really fascinating and so then what she does is she moves us forward and also that immediately puts us in a position of understanding what will become torture island and it almost sets the stage for all of these these things that have happened over the course of the last i mean it's not that long the talisman high is like what three weeks so you start to think like those first six books happen in three weeks Yes. And then, and now here we are a year later, and things are going to, and it's almost like telegraphing to the readers, we're going to start telling bigger stories now. Well, and here's what's really interesting. What I was thinking about that too is 
most of the second part of the book, the year later part, is them on the Amazon. Mm. And there's definitely a sense of like the mythological creature, right? Like regular creatures being like superhuman, like, you know, submarine sized or whatever. But you know what else I was thinking is these are also um, mortal dangers. Mm -hmm. And I think it's some foreshadowing of the fact that that torture island is that mortals are dangerous to the lore in a way that has never been the case Mm -hmm. before ever you're absolutely right this is the first book where we see mortals on the page for real holly's a sort of mortal for like five minutes whatever 30 pages but we never interact and holly has a jerk boyfriend right so he he's like the one mortal we've seen right um but now we've got a boat full of what we think are mortals and also we start to see Again, you know, not to make this about Cressley's politics being overt on the page, but the moment where she's on the boat and she walks into the meet and greet and there's a sign on the wall and it's like, here's information about the Amazon. And it's like, it's ex- it's the longest river in the world and 25% yeah. of the world's fresh water is comes from this river. And then it's like, now because the rainforests are going away. Yes. It's literally yes. Irre- the thing, what we are doing to the planet here in the Amazon is irreversible. And I was yes. like, hello, that's an environmental yeah. thing. And then later somebody said, one of the scientists on the boat is, um, I forget what he, what his specialty is, but he says he's going to look for unidentified tribes of people. And Gareth says, if you haven't found them yet, don't you think yeah. it's possible they don't want to be found? Which is yeah. something that made me think of that recently. The the kid in the South Pacific oh, yeah. who took himself and was, you know, killed on that island, you know, and rightfully so. Yes. Yeah. So right. it's interesting because I think that what Cressley's doing here is she's also, you're right. It is that she's starting to show us that perhaps it's humanity that's the big bad in all of yeah. this. And it's. A very powerful moment when you get there as a reader. I mean, and it does, to be fair. What? I mean, I'm on my fifth or sixth read of this series. So and I never, I don't think I've ever gotten here yet. I, usually I get to it much later during like the Declan Chase, during Torture Island, right? Yes. So, I mean, maybe it's not that much later, but it's, it's... The seeds of it are so much clearer, like are being sown here. And like I said, I think that's a big part of why this is the beginning of the second movement, even though... Caro's book is really the first one where we're on Torture Island because it's clearly like setting up an entire different thing. And and I think it's about like the recklessness of humans. I mean, at the end, when the hubris of man, like the whole thing about El Dorado really being La Dorada. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, right? I love it. Right? I think it's, a, it's, a, it's about that like working women thing, but it's also about the like explorers and the the hubris of explorers about colonizers. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's a lot of like political commentary that's happening. Which has to happen considering where it's taking place, right? Yeah. Like we are taking we are talking about a place they're in Brazil, right? Well, they must be, right? Because they're in the Amazon basin, right? So they're in Brazil. And look, this is 2010. We're reading it in 2019. Brazil is a mess right now. They have a person in power in Brazil. I'm all like, remember so are we. Well, I mean, yeah, Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah. But Brazil's a mess. They have a guy who's in charge who's basically just like our guy, except our guy doesn't have access to a rainforest to pillage. Um, So what what their guy is doing is basically making it okay for them to just raise the entire rainforest. 
which is going to impact the rest of the world, just like our guy is going to impact the rest of the world in other ways. Yeah. But the point is, I mean, what is it felt like a really important book to be reading right now. I mean, it's I, when I say these things to people who don't read romance novels, they think I'm crazy. They literally yeah. think I'm crazy. How sad for them. <laughs> I also think for me, it felt the the Charlie and Isabel thing. Like that was really fascinating too. It was fascinating, and I don't know what I think about it. But there was one part where Lucia starts to say something, and Isabel sort of snaps at her, like, "Don't call me a sassy Latina. Like, don't do it." And I think considering the only other previous like Latin American people were like gorillas that Bowen just killed, this felt more aware. Like, res- yeah, oh, right. Maybe aware is a good word, right? Just more like, okay, I'm setting in this place that that has its own history and culture, and mm-hmm. these are outsiders, and they're aware that they're outsiders, mm-hmm. um, and that this is like not for them, and especially yeah. when they make it down. The Rio Labyrinthio, I'm not sure I'm saying that right, even though I listened to the audiobook. And they get to like El Dorado and there's all these warnings. Mm-hmm. And of course, like any, re- it's like if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark or read anything mm-hmm. ever, like, oh, there's a bunch of warnings about things they shouldn't be doing. I wonder <laughs> yeah. how fast before they do the ball. Why does it always <laughs> have to be snakes? <laughs> yes. This is part of why the joy of this book, and there is so much delight in this book for me it is so much fun it is it's another road trip and it's also it's almost more of a um oh it's almost more of a romancing the stone kind of road trip because of where they are but then on top of it it is you're right it's indiana jones it's Lara Croft. There's an actual at, at some point Regan texts her and says, like, I'm playing the Tomb Raider video game right now. Like, I wish you were I bet you wish you were here. Um and, and Lucia's like, I'm actually about to go raid a tomb. <laughs> I'm a, Angelina can take a seat. I am about to raid a tomb. Yeah. Yeah. And break open an altar with my sex powers. Well, I mean Who wouldn't? <laughs> If Gareth McGree gives you an opportunity to break open an altar with your sex powers, oh my God, do you think Sierra Simone wrote Priest after reading this? Do you think this was an inspiration for Priest? You know, I will say this. Let's put that in, in our Sierra questions. I think uh, having se- defiling an altar has been kind of a thing for a long time, I'll say. <laughs> it's true. I mean, not, I'm not saying it wasn't an amazing thing, Sierra, but... <laughs> I think that's the other part about this. The introduction of gods and goddesses, like they've been hinted at before, but they aren't players in Mm -hmm. the same way, right? And this is also one of the first times, this is the first time that we see Nyx uh, say she's going to become a goddess. Yeah, which I had not really caught the first time around. No, because I didn't catch that until way like wicked abyss like much further in so i mean i think that's the other thing that's like really interesting is like okay you have immortals and gods and humans and the interplay of all of them in these like what should be sacred spaces but then really aren't or are they i mean it's like a real a lot of really interesting questions there about belief and what makes you powerful and kruok's like believers and what they can make people do or believe or not do you know, that like acolytes and the power of like sort of your evil followers is really a big part of this too. Yeah. Religion comes into play here in a way that it's never before. I think it really is setting up the order 
too. Again, this is like to me like a little preview of, of what might come. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we've sort of been all over the place. Um, hopefully you've listened to the book or, or hopefully you've read the book before you came to us because um, we've, really, we've really been traveling a meandering road here. One of the things I, I liked about this book the second time around was like the development of their sexual relationship. Mm-hmm. Because I think the first time around, I felt like, well, they're fooling around, but that's not like triggering the chastity clause. And I was really interested in it, though, more this time as like the development of their, like a a reflection of their development of their comfort for each other and them getting to know each other Mm. in a way that like felt friendlier. Like almost more like what we saw with Danny and Murdoch. Yeah. As opposed to like Emma and Lachlan who were just like butting heads the entire time. look, Gareth is a good, noble guy. Yeah. And we haven't seen, I mean, maybe Sebastian's a good, noble guy, like a good guy, but so depressed. Yes. And the, and, but we, we really haven't seen many, Murdoch is a great guy. And like, yeah. But I think Gareth is just like a decent Dude, he's loyal. He's loving. He we've when we find him the second time, we're told instantly. We've to, we're told he's been chasing her for a year and protecting yeah. her, like from a distance. He's just ripped the heads off of two demons who were sent to assassinate her. Or even the scene we saw him offer to feed Emma and to hold up the yeah. house. Yeah, in in book one, we saw that, but you kind of forget about it like there's so much else that goes on yeah but when it happens again in this book again i i love that sort of thing where you go back and see the same thing from another character's point of view Mm -hmm. we get that when he offers to feed emma it's pure nobility it's pure yeah i mean and it's again it's characterization it's perfect characterization of the like a on the one hand like in in the simplest form it's like a are loyal yes they are pack animals they will always be loyal to their alpha and his mate, and that's that. Yep. But on a romance level, we're looking at a guy who is a really, truly decent guy. I also would argue that, you know, we talked about the spare, right, and mm-hmm. being the spare. But I think it is a demonstration of the fact that he would have been a, a good king had he ever accepted that role. Of course. And I think that's just like an interesting thing. He doesn't really see what we see. But he's not Cade. Right? Because we just came off a prince mm-hmm. who could who was intended to inherit, right? Like there yes. was there was a moment where, you know, Rydstrom says, You're gonna inherit and Kate is like, yeah. I'm not. I'm not. This is no. Mm-hmm. But you do and certainly you see an echo of that in the in Gareth, but Gareth is there's no question about Gareth's ability versus Cade was just a mess. Yeah. A delightful, roguish mess, but a mess nonetheless. Gareth is just, aside from being noble and loyal, he's also really fun. Yeah. I want to hang out with him. In my mind, Gareth is like Jason Momoa, just like a bear. Shaggy and fun. You know what's interesting then is the scene where he, so basically the full moon comes, even though he has a whole plan to resist her. They have what I think is a really interesting scene, again, is like the evolution, the evolution of their relationship through their sexual relationship is really well done in this book. So what happens is, I mean, you know, it's the night of the full moon and he he really has no defenses. Before we do that, can you talk about the cuff? Yes. Which I think is beautiful. 
she keeps wondering why he has been able to stay away from her during the the full moon for the past year, right? Like, wh- how is it happening? And we come to find out that the first couple months, he essentially had his kinsmen beat the shit out of him and break his legs so that he, like, doesn't have the strength to get to her. But then, after Bowen gets with Barraquetta, he hires the witches to make him this silver cuff that will essentially... He won't be able to fully turn if he's wearing it. And the thing that's fascinating about that is twofold. One is he has hated the witches, Mm -hmm. right? They have all been so terrified of the witches. And then he shows like sort of this personal growth. Mm -hmm. I'm going to (laughs) go. I'm going to go and get this thing from this new source, right? I'm not going to be afraid of it. But the other thing about it that's really interesting, too, is that Lucia knows she several times thinks like fate has a way of getting what she wants Mm -hmm. and this isn't gonna work for long well and what's magnificent about it is that it happens in this moment where the fear so as you you talked about earlier this idea of um the amazon suddenly the world turning against the lore right there's yeah they're on this river this river if is filled with untold horrors None yeah. of which are Lorian. All of which right. are just fucking huge crocodiles <laughs> and shit. Like piranhas and like bugs the size of your head, right? And and I did like, we didn't talk about this earlier, but I did like the fact that the fear Gareth has instantly, the fear and respect that he has instantly for the Amazon when he gets yes. there. And ultimately becomes clear that the reason why is because he's been down this particular road before. But he gets into the river a couple of times and every time there is this very clear sense of this is not a good idea because this could end you. This could be the moment like this crocodile could bite off your head and then you're done. Like there's yeah. no regenerating. Which is kind of amazing because until this point, we thought everything was... The human world was toothless, right? Yeah. The lore was more all-powerful, which is kind of amazing. And what happens is during this, you know, he goes into the water to fight a crocodile or do a thing, <laughs> and then he comes back up and the cuff's gone. Yeah. And it's not, yes, it's fate, but it's also Earth. The thing that that then is really interesting is, like, so, you know, they make one of these, like, agreements. I'm going to try and go the really far in this direction to get away from you. <laughs> these agreements never work, but I love them. they don't. I love them, too. I'm going to confess, when the heroine hears the hero coming through the woods, forget oh, it. God, I'm yes. done. I'm done. Yelling, Lucia. <laughs> it's like, um, you know, in Lost. Did you ever watch Lost? Just the first season. There, but there were the moments where, like... Whole trees were like knocking over on the island, and you're like, some shit is coming, and it's gonna yes. be bad. <laughs> but in this case, it's gonna be great because it's gonna be naughty bits, and it is great. Like she sees that he's trying to resist because he's made this vow to her, and that's what we're gonna talk about next is the vows. And and then she sort of says like, I want this too, right? She reaches and kisses him, and they have like sex all night, of course. But what's fascinating is that the moment he is like kind of most tempted to give up on her is the next morning when she essentially is freaking out. Mm -hmm. And he says something really interesting. He says something like, you have to own your decisions. And she thinks that's easy to say if you've never made the kind of terrible decision I have made. 
Mm-hmm. And he like, and you know, he storms off because she won't accept like finally that they've come to this place. And, you know, and he doesn't know she's freaking out about losing her archery. Mm-hmm. And, and yet very quickly, he's like, oh, shit, I have to go back. But then an anaconda gets him. And why does it always have to be snakes? <laughs> No. Um, no, interestingly enough, uh, that I think that scene, it's right around there that he says to her, and it, I think the direct quote is something like, so what? Women leave their jobs all the time for men. Yes. Yes. And, and her uh, fury. What? But I mean, of course, and this is a good example of like, we've seen this happen with Mariketta. We've seen this happen with Sabine, where women's work is in some way devalued. Yeah. And then in this particular case, it could not be clearer that Lucia's work is the most important work of the entire series to date. Her job is to stop the apocalypse. Yes. Sit down, dog. Yeah. <laughs> and I I I loved that she doesn't really back down from that. Like they get past that moment, yeah. but it is not with her saying you're right, it's okay. No, because it's not. Because for a thousand yeah. years, she's or two thousand years, she's been the archer. Well, and there's a point where he's like even says something like, you know, it's just your pride talking. And she's like, fuck you. Who wouldn't be proud of yeah. being the best in the world at something? Yeah. Now, what I would say to listeners is we are going to come to another archer in this yes. series who is also the greatest archer of all time. And who is also going to face this exact problem, but in a completely new way. So when we get there, pay close attention. So then, I mean, I think like to like, like finish the thread, right? Like, so the their first sexual interactions, it's just like trust building and like getting to know each other. And then the second one, they're really grappling with like, this is tied into my very identity. Mm-hmm. But then it's, and again, I like, we have to talk about the end. So at the end, they both essentially intend to trick the other and go off Kruok with this do more, which is this God killer. And which is an um, arrow. I mean, which is an arrow. So and it was it, it an arrow in Wonder Woman in Wonder Woman. There's a God killer to the movie. Did you see it? I did. Is it but an it's arrow? Diana, her, Diana herself is the god killer in the movie, remember? Yeah, I mean, I remember Diana being the god killer, but not the arrow part. What's interesting about this, and it's just so perfect because I've said this before, but every time I start one of these books, I think, you know, Cressley lays out the threads in the first hundred pages, which is the, the goal, right? When you're sitting down, right. this is for the writers in the group. When you're writing a romance novel, you really should, in the first hundred pages, have it all laid out. You know, readers should know what the problem is and what the threads are and who the characters are. And, you know, it should all be there on the page. And Cressley, invariably by page 100, has done all that. And I always try to figure out what the end game is. And I can never do it. And it's because she's so good at her job. May we all someday be as good at our job. But the interesting thing here is that she's established this character who is Lucia has married, is a bride of this this creature, this god of grossness. It's he's the god of of cannibalism. Yeah, he's like filled with maggots and blood. He's gross. He's disgusting. Yes. Also, I would say this is just a quick aside is now I think we're also getting into a place where Cressley is playing with villains and I want to come back to villains. Mm. Um so anyway, we have this god who is the god of cannibalism who has raped and married the 
for everybody, the rape is off the page. But he's raped and married Lucia. Um, Because she is married to him, she is immune to his power, which is that he can force you to kill the thing you love most. And the thing that's entirely diabolical about it is, because we see later in the cave, because Gareth is overcome by this power, Mm -hmm. that when you are killing this person that you love, you imagine that they are begging you to do it. Right. That you're essentially putting them out of their misery. Right. So events happen, and Gareth is with Lucia in the cave, and he is under the spell of Kruak, and he thinks she is begging him to kill her because she is in pain, and he is holding a sword, he is holding a blade blade over her, and in his mind, he's tortured by the idea that he's got to kill her, but he comes to a place where he's like, but it's putting her out of her misery. I'm going to sacrifice my own future for her. Because I might also add, the other piece of this is that werewolves lose themselves when they've lost their mate. So... It, essentially, if your mate dies, if your fated mate dies and you're a Lyke, you go mad. And there's no coming back from it. No one's ever come back from it. So Gareth is there. He has a blade. Luch- he believes Lucia is begging him to kill her. In actual fact, Lucia is begging him not to kill her. She's trying to get him out of from underneath the spell. He lowers the blade and his beast takes control. And like, this is the, this could only work if he were a Lyke, right? Well, and it's fascinating because Kurok even says, like, I had the man. He really believes what's happening. But the Lyke, the Lyke is the one who I could not control. Yeah, the beast is uncontrollable. By anybody yeah. but his mate, right? It's really, it's a beautiful, oh. it's beautiful world building that I'm sure like six books ago she did not think about, but it's like a perfect solution to this problem. And it's a devastating scene. He's wrecked. I mean, it's like, yes. He's wrecked. In a, in a way that really illustrates, too, that now everybody gets that whatever Bowen was going through was not losing his mate because this is what it really looks like. Yeah. So we have this moment where, um, so instead of, sh- instead of killing Lucia, Gareth's beast stabs Gareth in the side and he becomes immobilized and then things happen and they get separated. Um, and right. Gareth gets taken back to the compound in Scotland. Right, by his brothers. Where he's lost his mind. Essentially, it's like, you you know, what they say is you can never come back from this, right? Like, the beast is is in charge of him. And, and the reason we, like, kind of went all through this is because what I thought was really fascinating is it's, like, the, yet another kind of third evolution in their sexual relationship. Because Lucia knows what has happened to him, and she essentially storms the gates at Kenavane and is like, let me in there with him. And Lachlan's like, uh, I don't think that's a really good idea. You don't really know what you're getting into. And she's like, let me in. And he's like, uh, maybe he's going to. She's like, let me in. <laughs> and what happens is essentially she like fucks him back to reality. Now, I'm going to tell you, at first, I was like, I don't like this. But very quickly, one of the things I thought about was several times in the book, Gareth talked about how physical like they are. That everything they do is really tied into their physical body. That it's the way they show affection. It's the way they understand, like, like the body language of other people. It is, like, deeply and profoundly embedded in their identity, this relationship between body and mind. Mm-hmm. 
And therefore, it kind of made sense to me, like, pretty quickly that this would be the way that she would reach him. That there was no other way. She was not going to be able to talk the beast back out of being, right? No. It's impossible. It could only be through this physical means that she would be able to, like, literally reconnect at this very profound level that like, yes, I am your mate and I am really here. I am not a ghost. But also it had to be this way. Yes, on the one hand, like are the closest thing to id in the lore. Yes, it's very primitive. It's very, it's, um, yes, it's all physical. All that is true. But at the same time, we're talking about a heroine who has been afraid, resistant to and afraid of sex for the entirety of her 2000 year life, right? She has eschewed sex for millennia and now she too has been awakened by love. Yeah. Right? She, Lucia doesn't hesitate. She goes immediately, the moment she is free, she goes immediately to him and she is, she hears the warnings and she's like, fuck right off, all of you. Yeah. Let me in. I need to see my mate. And that's yes. where I want to say something about the very beginning of this book. Because in the very uh, earlier, an earlier episode, you and I talked about the fact that no heroine really has a moment of realizing that she's found her fated mate. Yeah. And at the very, very start of this book, Lucia is there to kill the kill the kobolds at the on the rugby field and before gareth sends her she sees him and she yeah. never had a reaction to a man ever that's right that's right except for this particular man now yeah we can talk for a thousand years about how cressley always gives women the ability to put like sexual desire out of their mind to get shit done um yeah which seems fabulous but like in that moment i highlighted it and i was like faded mates like yes lucia was destined for gareth from the beginning before he ever even scented her she knew so then when we get to the end it's really a perfect it's a perfect ending where she knows she knows he's hers and she doesn't it never even occurs to her that the sex that sex wouldn't be a part of this. I guess I would just say, like, in that sense, like, this, like, the marriage of their, like, the sexual evolution of their relationship and their evolution each as characters and their their um, relationship with each other, I think it, this book is really perfect. It's funny to me that I, I didn't have really strong memories of it, but man, when I read it again this time, I was... It's so emotional. I was so weepy. I mean, when he thinks he's killed Killed her, her. he's just so broken. I mean, we all know that I love a broken hero. But the other piece of this is he shows up and then they do it. And he's like, you're dead. Like, he thinks to himself, like, this is a fantasy. Like, this is me. It's another shard of my broken mind. Yeah. And and it's not. (laughs) And she has to prove herself to him again. It's so magnificently done it's the pacing of it is perfect again this is a writing thing but like sometimes scenes like this can be rushed or they can take too long it's the perfect length she there isn't a moment of this scene that is a misstep 
So this is then, I think, the other way in which this book is really building up for like the torture island arc in an emotional way not just in a plot like right like we talk about world building a lot and sometimes I wonder if like do people really know what we're talking about but you know like so it's obviously like building up to like sort of like ramping up to like who the heroines are and the fact that they can be hurt but it's also ramping up now to a series of books in which fated mates do not recognize each other not refuse to recognize each other, like do not recognize each other, mm-hmm. right? Or that they must, they're, you know, they're subterfuge, that they must, they must, um, like with Caro, it's right, like I have to lie to him. Mm-hmm. And then with Regan, it's, and, and with Lothair. I mean, and so part of it too is like, we're now approaching, you know, the first however many books, it's like, okay, I'm your fated mate. I like it or I don't like it. This is now a whole different depth mm-hmm. and level to which the, the conflicts between fated mates are not, are really profoundly different, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think this moment where she climbs into that cage with him and says, no, I'm fighting for you. And I'm going to fight in a way that I gave up on purpose. But now not only do I reclaim it, but like, it's going to be what saves you. And this is, I think, really pointing to the next five books, having a very different kind of fated mate like problem yes very different so i think that's it too yeah she's leveling up and the series is leveling up and if you guys think that we have talked over much about these books until now forget it (laughs) these are double episodes now (laughs) i think that that's part of why you know and i don't really want to skip ahead to the morior but you know after lothair you guys you can't you have to then level up again Right? Like, it can't be that... You can't go back. You can't go back. Which is why I have to say I'm pretty fucking curious about Monroe. Because it's very hard to go back. And if you do go back, it has to add depth or complexity to a story we thought we already knew and understood. Or it has to level up in a way that feels like there's a reason to stay invested. And that is just very hard to do with a book, a series that's this long. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, when people are like, I don't know, you know, I don't like the Morior. I'm like, well. It's- <laughs> well, one, you're wrong. And two. <laughs> you wouldn't like this series without it. So. Yeah. I also you know, would you- say there is the only other, there is a third way that Monroe could go, yeah. which is it could be perfect. Right? Like if it, if it's neither of the options that you just gave. And it is a sort of return to this version, these books, yeah. right? Because remember, also, we haven't gotten to McReeve yet, but Monroe yeah. is the the immediate next book from McReeve in the yeah. in the context of IAD, right? I mean, the for, the first chapter of Monroe is in the back of McReeve, but McReeve is incredibly complex. So I think. I'm I too am fast. I'm also just excited that there's a new Cressley book coming. But um so I want to talk about a couple of other sort of little things. One is I think we have to talk about the ending. Not okay. the ending of Gareth and Lucia, but the ending ending, the epilogue. Um and we won't get too much into it because we're about to really get into it next episode. Torture Island is here. <laughs> the epilogue is Lothair, Regan, and Caro all being abducted, which is amazing when you think about the fact that a group of humans are able to infiltrate Lothair's world. Lothair, the enemy of all the oldest living vampire, right? Yeah. 
they are able to infiltrate his lair and abduct him. After this moment of triumph where he has stolen La Dorada's ring. Well, what's interesting is that he he literally says in his, like, he it happens and in his mind he thinks, like, I have to trace away from here. But he stays, and the reason why he stays is for that ring. Like, he's woken this evil goddess up. He's stolen the ring that will presumably bring about, that we are told is going to bring about the apocalypse. That theft. And potentially, by the way, this is the only lost limb in the book is the, the broken finger. Oh, of- I have two. I have two oh, others. okay. All right. <laughs> Though they're cheap. I might have more. We'll go back to that. Um, but the, yeah, the Dorada's finger, right? He's stolen yeah. the ring, and Lothair gives himself up to these humans rather than lose the ring. So um, we now know, like, that ring is everything. Because before this, yes, okay, he gets there, he steals the ring, Dorada wakes up, and we think to ourselves, like, oh. But we haven't, we didn't quite, it all felt fine. It all felt on brand for Lothair until the end where you realize, like, this ring is so important to him that he's willing to sacrifice whatever this business is. And this business is about to be very, this is not great. So um, I want to do a quick, I do want to do a quick content warning for Torture Island. Just heading into the next few books, just be aware of the fact that it is literally a place where immortals are tortured. For me, it wasn't like overly graphic or gruesome, but the word vivisection is used on a number of, in a number of places. So just, you know, go in eyes wide open. Most of it happens off page, I think, although I'm a terrible, I have a terrible memory for things like that because I just like blow right past it. I'm like, la, 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 la. Yeah, we're not the best judges. We are not. uh, We do not require vivisection content warnings, apparently. But um, if you do, you should know it's coming. Yeah. Uh, Okay, what else? What else do we have? Well, so the lost limb count. And then I want to like circle back maybe to Lothair for a minute. Sure. And then we need to just we need to remind everybody that we've got a moon scientist this year, this week. Oh, that's right. Um, Okay. Okay. So I had two. I had really one. So Lucia, Lucia's. I'm sorry, I keep saying Lucia because my aunt's name is Lucia, so. Um, But Lucia has her neck snapped at one point, which I guess isn't really a lost limb, but I I put it in there. And (laughs) I texted you about these. Uh, Gareth gets kicked in the face (laughs) during the rugby match, and he loses his molars. Oh, God. Um, And he, he breathes in his molars. Um, and then he they get whacked out of him by another by a demon or something. So um, I'm counting those teeth as a lost limb. And then Dorada's finger. I know that our rule has been no one other than the main characters, but I feel like Dorada's finger isn't. I feel like one. it counts. Here, here's the ones I had. They were like really. They were auxiliary. I said, "Does Gareth's human identity count?" <laughs> Probably not. Yes. And then, yes. and then the fact that Lucia like. Pull like essentially peels off all the skin on her hand to get out of a pair of handcuffs. Oh, yeah. But she actually does keep her limb. But there is like a whole like essentially she peels her own. Ugh! It sounded really pretty it's gross. Pretty so gross. I was like, maybe that maybe that counts. Sure, I'll allow it. Um. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Um. I don't know that I would just say Lothair Watch. Here's the thing we talked about doing this. Oh yeah, Lothair Watch. He's only appeared in a couple of books so far, right? In A Hunger Like No Other. He appears in the fight at Val Hall and just sort of like half traces in, watches Evo and goes away. That part gets retold in this book, right? Isn't it this one? Because um, Lucia's there at that fight at the beginning. Mm-hmm. 
And then in um, Sabine and Rydstrom's book, In Kiss of a Demon King. He becomes more important. Yes. And we really see that he is essentially trading his help for favors. So that's like the first thing that happens. And then really in this book, we get him right kind of full vampire mode. Take out a whole boat of people and come steal that ring. And he, I mean, full vampire mode because (laughs) he travels by coffin. Which, yeah, I, when it happened, I burst out laughing because I was like, it's such an old fashioned way of, yeah. like, Cressley was like, well, how does Lothair get to the Amazon? I don't know. I guess he travels in a coffin. Like, like all other vampires, that's how vampires travel. Um, but it happened and I burst out laughing. And then Lucia said instantly, like, as soon as she saw that there was a coffin on the boat, she doesn't hesitate. She knows it's Lothair. There is a really funny moment, though, where Regan is, like, shit-talking Lothair and kind of being like, who thinks he's handsome anyway? And Lucia's kind of in her brain like, well, I've actually always thought he's a little handsome. (laughs) (laughs) And I just thought that was, like, a funny moment between them where she's like... Because Lothair looks real weird. Yeah. For somebody who ultimately will be one of the... I mean, who I would say probably is the most popular hero of the series. He's got... He's incredibly... He's basically pale with white he's basically white with white hair and blood red eyes and so you have to sort of come to Lothair (laughs) all right I have a question for you though I know that we're super over but I love Eric and just want him to know that okay um (laughs) there was quite a bit of vowing to the lore in this book (gasps) yes except it still doesn't work it's not quite the same we're getting there you guys it's coming she now she's got the phrasing it's, yeah, I'm the closest really that we get a hint of it is that Lucia prompt vows to her parents that she will not run away with him. And when she does, because she has broken her promise, they cannot help her. That was probably the closest we got to like yes. what happens, yes. right? Well, there is also a moment where she says to later in the book, she and Gareth are talking about having sex or not having sex or I don't know. They're always talking about having sex or not having sex. Um, But Gareth says, she says, I need you to get off this boat. And like, I will come to you after this is done. The moment it's done, I'll be with you within a week or something. And he says, well, how do I know that's going to happen? You've been, I've been chasing you for a year. And she says, I'm willing to vow it to the lore. Then she doesn't. And then there are a couple of other moments in the book where she, where people use that exact phrasing. But no, we are not there yet. There's no description of what that means. It's coming, you guys. I would bet that it's the next book, which is, we should talk about that. Um, Demon from the Dark. Yay, Jen's favorite. It's, I think it's my favorite, you guys. So I'm really excited about that. And here's the other really exciting thing that's about to happen in about five more seconds, though, which is months ago when we first started recording, we asked around to see if anybody knew any, like, Moon scientists, like astronomer, astronomers, no, astrologers, no, different thing. Not astrologers. <laughs> not astrologers. We Sorry, talk about summer. that. Yeah, we do. And so um, astronomer Summer Ash joins us next to talk about the moon. And I'm really into the moon. I've talked about it a lot on this podcast, but we like essentially held off to like sort of connect it to Gareth's book because he is a character for whom the moon and his relationship to the moon and the way it calls to him is really important. So we're really excited to welcome astronomer Summer Ash. Well, welcome, Summer, to Faded Mates. Thank you so much. I'm not sure, everybody, if you remember, back when I talked about a hunger like no other and various other 
Um, I had some questions about the moon and science exclamation point. And then we went on Twitter and said, like, does anybody know anybody who would come onto this podcast and talk to us? And the pretty amazing MC Stardust, um, an astrophysicist by day, Summer Ash has agreed to be on with us. And Summer, why don't you introduce yourself first and tell us about your life as a scientist? Sure. Um, So I pretty much was obsessed with space from a very young age. And I will say that it started with the moon. So we can come back to that if you like. Was it werewolves? Unfortunately, no. Oh, all right. It was the night sky. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it was always space started with maybe wanting to be an astronaut, but then sort of kind of weaved its way through engineering and working in aerospace, and then just really wanting to study like what was way out there. And so then I went back to school, studied galaxies, Got really excited about being able to talk to people about science. And so I settled down at Columbia doing um, outreach for the astronomy department and basically kind of sharing my love of science, the night sky, and um, what we're learning about the universe with the public. And I also do science writing and science talks and science chats and science podcasts. And an incredible a blog called Startorialist, which is about uh, star-related, astronomy-related fashion. Yes. And that is really hard not to spend all my time on. It's awesome. The other day I was on a, I was on the Tadashi Shoji web- website and I was like looking and there was a star, there's like a star field dress. And I was like, I wonder oh. if Summer knows about this. <laughs> I think we might, because I think I might have that saved as a draft. We have like hundreds of saved drafts. That's amazing. And you know what I want to say? So I'm a, I'm in real life a middle school teacher. This is my cool. side gig. And I'm going to tell you this amazing story, which is like, thank you for the work you do, because seeing scientists in real life changes kids. And one of my favorite stories is um, we are really lucky. I work at a school that has a lot of resources. And we had, um, I, I probably was 10 years ago, we were lucky enough to have a female astronaut come and talk to the middle school. Nice. And it was amazing. And um, like recently, like a year ago, I ran into one of my former students and she is studying astrophysics at Yale. And I was like, wait, really? And she said, you know what changed me? It was when that astronaut came. And I just realized, <gasps> and doesn't that give you goosebumps to like, so when kids see scientists in real life talking about science, it just opens up the entire world for them. Absolutely. And so that's such an awesome, like that job just sounds like it must bring you an amazing amount of joy that's so cool it does actually you're right it's very very rewarding and can I just tell you that I was skyping well like a google hangout with fifth graders in Kentucky just last week talking about space awesome and there's an amazing program called dream wakers and that's exactly what they do they link up the classroom to real people in the field so you can see it and then you can be it that's awesome um, I will tell you the best question I ever had a kid ask me about this. A kid once was like, hey, <laughs> and I should have known right then. <laughs> They're like, um, if we sent nuclear rockets up and blew up the moon, what would happen? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> no, it's not, Sarah. It's a terrible question. <laughs> Wait, and I- but what would happen? <laughs> I don't know. That's why I didn't answer it. I think I just gave the kid the stink eye and was like, oh. Like, f- toxic wait, masculinity. Summer, wait, 
No, stop. Summer, well, what would happen if we blew up the moon? My first question is, what's your motivation and what did the moon ever do to you? <laughs> right? Uh, but I'm also pretty sure that they did blow up the moon sort of in a Doctor Who episode, which was an outrage to every scientist fan who watches that show. And even though I love it dearly and I watched it too, and I was, it was hurting my heart. Yeah. I just was like, yeah, again, I I do. I think I was like toxic masculinity. Like why would you even think about that? (laughs) No, but that's kids are so awesome. Like no grown human adult would ask that question. But now that that question is in the world, I'm like, well, I, what is, what is maybe we can get, um, maybe we can get XC X. What is it? XCD. What's that? XKCD. Yes, maybe the we can get if. them to answer it for us. Yes, <laughs> you, know, you should that, check. Sarah, do you know about that book? It's amazing. They might no. have already done it. Yeah, I did a whole book talk once on this book called What If? And it's basically like kids' questions like that. And I am obsessed, actually, believe it or not, despite our you uh, you know our, my moon problems, my real obsession is nuclear science. I have read pretty much every book out there about like nuclear disasters. And I did a whole book talk about um, there's a question in there like, what would happen if you swam in a pool with <gasps> spent nuclear fuel rods at the bottom? Oh, my God. I feel like you'd definitely get very hot. Yeah, it's like you would die. <laughs> um, it's a re- I'm gonna we're gonna the show notes for this like little section are gonna be amazing. <laughs> All right, so let's get right down to it because I want to talk about werewolves in the moon. Yeah, sure, bring it. Um, well. Let's talk about, okay, so first of all, can you confirm, like, I had a really interesting question as I was like, you know, the full moon sets when the sun comes up all over the earth, and someone was like, really, all over the earth? So do we all experience the same phase of the moon everywhere on earth, like, right, like, at nighttime or whatever? Like, or is it just like, I mean, like, the sun, right, depending on where you are, is going to look different in the sky. So maybe can you talk a little bit about, like, our relationship to the moon in space? Sure. So this is going to be challenging without visuals, um, but I will do my best. Essentially, when the moon, the moon's going around the earth. So if you can just leave the sun in, fixed in place for once and leave the earth fixed and just think about where the moon's going, that will show you sort of how the moon is illuminated based on how much of the sun is being able to shine on it. And so if we take the first quarter moon, which is a terrible name because it's a half moon to us right it's so confusing (laughs) so it's like we see a a half of the lit side but half of the other lit side it makes no sense but the first quarter is when you see half of the moon illuminated and when i say first quarter uh another sort of um handy note is that the moon always grows from right to left so the right side will get bright first after a new moon And then it will grow until it's full and then it will fade into a new moon again. And the last side on the left will be lit right before it goes to a new moon again. I had a kid once, I'm going to like draw something. I mean, I had a kid once tell me that one way you could figure out if it was like waxing or waning was um, like, if you looked at the crescent part, like the lit part. And again, I'm like, if you could see me making like, gestures in the air and then you drew a line right like you drew a line like so you're going to make a letter out of it so it's either going to be a b or a d so if it's a b it's a baby moon so it's like getting bigger 
right so it's like because the lit side is like i'm gonna draw this and you're like oh it's on the right it's a lowercase b it's a lowercase b oh okay yeah until you clarified lowercase i was like uh they both work those aren't letters (laughs) yeah no and then c right when it's waning and you draw it like the lit side is 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 like it would look more like a d yep a dying moon. Oh, so that's yeah. a clever little mnemonic device. Isn't kids, kids, kids. and they're crazy, amazing sure. ideas. And yet, when I was a kid, no one ever told me that. Baby moon. I guess dying I never moon. figured it out for Everybody... myself either. So, <laughs> well, now that you're an astrophysicist, <laughs> you have that. <laughs> I feel like actually, you know, when people figure out like what when you're trying to figure out what type of learner you are and everything. I really always was like the just rote memorization person. So I just figured out in my head, like, okay, it grows on the right and it thins out on the left. So then I'm like, right to left memory store. I was always a word associator. So the baby dying, like baby moon, dying moon thing worked for me for sure. <laughs> like at first you were saying the baby dying, which is a Yeah, and you're like, no, tragic. that's terrible. <laughs> and hey, by the way, never happens in romance. So we're oh, fine. Oh, right, exactly. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> So, okay, so to this end, if we have a full moon, the full moon is the full moon for the whole night, which would make perfect sense because that means a werewolf would have to be a werewolf, would have the most amount of time as werewolf on the full moon. Yeah, but also just to to go back to what you're asking about, like, does everyone on the earth see it? You can also think about, yeah, the earth is spinning under that moon. So if the moon is on the opposite side of the earth from the sun and the moon is spinning, then everybody on the night side rolls through and gets the and full sees moon. the same thing yeah right okay but i will say that measurably to astronomers and not necessarily measurably to our eyes the moon is moving through the night as we're rotating and so it is kind of changing on a tiny tiny scale that we could probably measure as scientists but not necessarily anything that's perceptible to you so like the full moon itself is really you know, a moment in time. Right. Right. Well, that makes sense. Right. So it's not a whole night long, but the fact is that the duration of the night won't change the moon that perceptibly does. Okay. So obviously if you're a werewolf, right. And you're, you're, I mean, obviously if you're a werewolf, I can't even say that straight face, you would be really tuned into the moon because it's like important to like your, like who you are. Right. So why is it that, I mean, and presumably our human ancestors were really tuned into the moon. I mean, I guess if you're a fisherman because of the tides you are, is that why just like regular people don't have to pay that much attention to it? Cause it just doesn't really seem to have an impact on our lives. Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it. I think also for my own purposes, as far as being an astronomer in New York, is that people just don't look up anymore. Or if they do, they don't do it enough. And even in New York City, even in Times Square, I can look up and see the moon. The first thing I do, actually, I've noticed whenever I walk outside, whether it's day or night, I look up just to sort of see what the sky is doing. And I just feel like not enough people do that. A lot of New Yorkers, they're like, no, you can't see anything from New York. And I'm like, um, have you looked? Yeah. I'm so happy that you said that. My daughter, I live in Brooklyn. Hi. <laughs> Neighbor. Um, and I, um, my daughter, who is five, said to me yesterday, do you think her birthday's coming up? And she was like, maybe I, I want a telescope. And I was like, honey, we live in New York City. Like... What are you going to see with the telescope? 
But you seem to think that she would see stuff with a telescope. Yeah. So. And at the very least, the moon looks – can I curse on your podcast? Oh, yeah. Yes, it looks sure. fucking amazing through a telescope. And it kind of never gets old because awesome. the, the detail that you can see in the craters is just kind of astounding. And even in Brooklyn, like, you would be able to, to look at um, Jupiter and Saturn. Mm-hmm. And depending on the telescope, you could potentially see – a couple of the moons around them wow, you know on a good clear so night cool. wow maybe maybe i'll get her a telescope you can email me well, and is, I can... will you come out and show us yeah <laughs> come to our roof absolutely <laughs> i would be your on-call like, astronomer that would be amazing <laughs> Well, I really, you know, I live in Chicago and I like light pollution here is so intense that outside of the moon, I really do think it's, I don't ever really see stars here and it's a real bummer. I bet you see the planets. Yeah, probably. But I, you know, it's, it's like really funny because I think, um, are there like some apps that you can recommend that like people that could help people figure out what they're looking at? Yeah, one of my favorites um, is called Sky Guide. And what I really like about it is that it's not too overwhelming. Because I almost feel like sometimes, you know, like Google Sky or something, it shows you everything. And then it's really hard to figure out where you are, what of that you're actually seeing. I mean, it's cool to know, like, oh, wow, look at all that's up there. But if you actually really want to know, like, hey, what's that bright light? What I like about Sky Guide, too, though, is that if you have just a tiny bit of of interest in any particulars, like you can search under constellations or star names or planet names, and it'll actually alphabetically have them, but it'll ghost the ones that aren't currently visible. And it'll tell you like when they rise and when they set. Oh, that's so cool. And it's also just like a nice, pretty interface. I'm a sucker for aesthetics. This actually leads me to like a second sign. Oh, like so in the second book in this series, um, I didn't bring it up in the podcast because I felt like I had like maybe played my nerd card too many times in the first <laughs> one talking about the moon. Um, but there's a part where, okay, so the main character is a Valkyrie and she's like lived for a thousand years. And one of the things she tells her like her paramour, right? This the hero, um, who's only you know a baby at three hundred years old. She says, um, she and he, you know, he's like kind of like, how old can you really be? And she says, um, well, how would you feel if I told you that the stars look different now than when I was a girl? And I stopped and I was like, okay, wait a minute, <laughs> like, cause I like. Like, do the stars change that much is sort of my question. And I think actually part of me feels like would and would you notice, right? Like if you went out and looked at the night sky every night and they were moving only the most minuscule amount, like would anybody have the kind of memory where they could say like this looks different now? Like, you know, is it possible to look up at the night sky and and the human eye? Like, could you register that kind of difference? I was really fascinated by that. Um, like tr- that image really stuck with me. Yeah, I would think that she would have to have like superhuman eyes. Well, she is a Valkyrie. <laughs> <laughs> Two of her parents are gods. <laughs> so. Well, in that case, I, I would give her a little bit of leeway, but um, no, because it's going to be like the full moon situation where they are changing. Um, and for an example, the North Star, so just the Earth's procession, which is also playing a role, 
Um, and I'll get back to the stars moving, but just in the sense of the North Star, like that's on a 26,000 year cycle. So you're not going to notice that the North Star is not at the North Pole of the sky within a few thousand years. So even more so with the stars themselves moving with respect to each other. The constellations do look different over time, but again, on that time scale, nobody would notice. Astronomers notice. We sort of, astronomers, what we do is we have epochs um, that we have like positions of stars and galaxies for, and I think they're on an average of like every 50 years for our purposes of accuracy, but again, no human eye is going to notice. So is it true, I mean, when you grow up and you're in, you know, say public elementary school in Rhode Island, <laughs> you get taught that the constellations looked, you know, Ursa Major looked like a bear then. Is that accurate or is that just a line that they're selling me? Oh, no, no, no. I mean, they're the pictures that people drew with them. Those are all still the same. But right. it just depends so, on who drew them. But it's not like there were more stars or that it looked more like a bear. It's just sort of there's it's still just the pattern. It's still just the pattern. That we see now. I will say that most likely there a lot of the um, imagery was probably conceived with zero light pollution. So it's probably ah. a lot easier to flesh out some sort of sure. drawing of like Orion with a club and with the shield and all this jazz mm -hmm. um, versus what you and I most of the time see. Even though I'm like nitpicking the science in the series in this way, like the astronomy, I think it's really powerful metaphor for like these are immortals, right? And yeah. and you know, I'm talking about like us in our daily lives going around being too busy to look up at the stars, but you know, for the immortals like like comparing themselves to things that are like that much greater, like that right that much more powerful that have been around for so long that seems so unchanging, it like makes Makes sense to me that this is like a really powerful symbol in the book because you know it's it it's long lasting in a way that like the ephemeral nature of humanity just can't really connect to oh yeah that makes complete sense to me i mean to me it's astronomy is one of those things where some sense of this ongoingness and this eons and eons it really does kind of seep into you both on time and size scales but yeah i think on average if i wasn't studying astronomy i don't think i would have a sense for any of that stuff what about the sort of uh, the the media the way that fiction and media play with the moon the stars the universe as being some kind of terror as as being a harbinger of bad things a harbinger of evil like this this kind of and what i'm thinking about is are things like you know werewolves turn into the beast at the full moon or they the the mythology around um evil creatures or paranormal creatures kind of having some sort of connection to the universe in a different way than humans is that something that you see over I mean, has that mythology existed forever? Or is it something that sort of television and film has brought to us? Do you, what do you think about that? I would get hazard a guess that it's been, that connection's been there forever. And why do you think that is? Like, what is it about the full moon versus the quarter moon or the whatever that really worries us as people? That's sort of the one connection that I'm not exactly sure about, but like jumping to something about maybe the full lunar eclipse where it's like a blood moon 
Um, mm. And it turns red. Like that's scary. And that's kind of other, other. I think it's, it's just got to do with this sense of this otherness. And so if there's a beast, then it shouldn't be of earth. It should be of something else. Or I can see the inclination to sort of assign it to something outside of who we are. And the moon is the the closest thing we have. Yeah, maybe. To other. And, and I don't know, maybe there are some sort of origin stories of monthly attacks or I don't know. So I don't, definitely don't know with the werewolf lore, but there's other connections such as comets. Um, comets were always, not always, sorry. Comets were often seen as, you know, harbingers of doom, like bad omens in history. Um, in, I know in China, and I'm not sure which time frame this was, but there would often be um, sort of an astronomer who was in the emperor's service. And occasionally, if the astronomer didn't like the emperor, they would predict a comet <laughs> that <laughs> to kind of like mess with them or something. That's amazing. Um, and I think even so with like supernova occasionally, because um, there are some historic um, there's some research in history to sort of de determine which comets and supernovas were actually, in fact, real. But even the Halley's Comet is in the Bayou Tapestry, which is the the Battle of uh, 1066 was all I was supposed to remember in in 10th grade history class. I think there's something really like built into humanity's DNA to want to explore and like like, what is there left to explore, right? Like, in our natural world, unless we're going to dive down into the Marianas Trench, which I don't think we figured out how to do. I think James Cameron <laughs> is doing it. Oh, well, James Cameron. <laughs> oh, great. Um, toxic masculinity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's what we can go find out about, right? Like, that's where we can go next. And I think, like, there was a spate of movies, like Gravity and The Martian, where, like, we really saw it was, like, like person versus nature right like that sort of primal conflict of like i'm gonna test myself against this thing that i shouldn't be able to survive and can i i mean i think that's like what a lot of space like our exploration is about and maybe that's why paranormal taps into that yeah i mean i also think there is a piece of this you know you said toxic masculinity and we're talking about phases of the moon and the most um there Dark Needs at Night's Edge, the one of the books in the series, um, is about a ghost who, you know, is forced monthly at the sliver moon to relive her death. Oh. Um, and and every month at the same time, she's forced to relive her death. And we've taught we talked about on the podcast for that episode um, that we it seems pretty clear to us that it's a metaphor for menstruation. Like there's mm. there's something about death in and it having to happen every month at the same time. And it strikes me that. Uh, the werewolf mythology, this sort of mythology of like m monthly cycles causing evil feels feels a little toxic. Feels totally feels like an echo of patriarchy, right? Absolutely. And the concept behind the werewolf for everybody has always been or for in in most mythology, at least all the mythology that I've ever encountered in my, you know, late night television watchings um, is, you know, werewolf as beast that wants to claim, you know, claim life and like yeah that's over a good point. overtake mm -hmm. right they're werewolves are not kind yeah except for in immortals after dark <laughs> 
Well, only once they fall in love, Sarah. And only for ladies. Only for ladies. (laughs) (laughs) It's heteronormative, to be sure. Um, Okay, Summer, what is like, okay, if there were things that you wished people like just knew about astronomy or about like the planets or right, like some sort of thing that you're like, either this is really cool and just really fun and people would love it or just like, oh, people always get this wrong and I wish they knew it. What would you want people to sort of like do better at oh that's a tough one <laughs> so many, so many answers <laughs> um sorry the first part of the question was just like, something that's really cool it's something really cool right and then maybe something to do better at well to do better at and not necessarily like that um okay well one thing is just practice saying the words astronomy and astrology and know the difference um because that's a big one sometimes it's just literally a slip of the tongue when people are talking to me but it's it's always like a little bit of a flag Um, that's really can so to that point can those two things coexist in terms of like can do astronomers are there astronomers who are like all right yeah i'm a capricorn you know (laughs) scorpio season Um, exactly in the in the sense of the buzzfeed quizzes sure um but um i mean i will say so astrology and astronomy were the same thing they started as the same thing because it's all about what is the sky doing and what's happening here on earth Um, You know, and that's how we figured out like when to harvest and when to plant and when to like go in the cave and stay warm and those kind of things. So, you know, they were the same thing. But for some reason, I'm not really sure how the branch off happened. But, you know, where Saturn is in what constellation is not going to change, like whether or not I have a good date tonight or whether or not someone gives me money tomorrow. Like, that part I kind of can't understand. Um, I can see the fun of like, I love the Zodiac constellations and that's kind of cool. It's great teaching point. And also like who doesn't want to have um, some starry constellation that they can put on various different things. On jewelry. Exactly. Like I (laughs) totally have Gemini stars that I own for sure. Well, fun fact, my first job out of college was working for an astrologer. Interesting. What kind of stuff did you do? I knew I didn't know anything about astrology short of I I am a Sagittarius and that is what I knew. Um, But she wouldn't hire me until she'd done my star chart. She was a very it was a very curious experience for about um, six months after I graduated from college and I was her assistant. I mean, I I did all sorts of things that were assistant like, Mm -hmm. but she was pretty crazy about star charts and not, you know, interacting. And she wanted star charts for everybody she interacted with. I mean, she wouldn't sign contracts when Mercury was retrograde and she was, you know. Yeah. So I mean, it was her whole thing. And I lasted not very long there, but we're going to line her up for an interview next. I think I think there's just a like a line and I think especially the line when you take money from people or when mm, you're yeah. giving a lot of mm-hmm. money that you could spend on other things that are important to your survival or your living your life or providing for your family then I think astrology is a problem for you know and I do I wish Teen Vogue didn't have an astrology column sure 
I think right. they should have an astronomy one instead. But yeah, that would be great. But you know, like that's not going to be my hill to die on. Sure. No. So okay, we have to know the difference between astronomers, who are the scientists, and astrologers, who are different. <laughs> but I will say we can actually go back to the zodiac and sort of your Valkyrie about the stars looking different. In the sense that, you know, you said you're a Sagittarius, but you aren't actually really a Sagittarius by the definition of that should be the constellation that the sun was rising in when you were born. Because there's technically now 13 constellations because somehow one of them got dropped. And just due to both the precession of Earth's axis and the precession of Earth's orbit around the sun, et cetera, et cetera. They're all like one off now. I almost feel like I think I'm think I'm a Gemini, but I t technically like the sun is rising in Taurus when I was born. So that has shifted. Yeah, yeah, there's that's true. That happened a few years ago. And it's like when Pluto. It, yeah, went except away that from us. when we demoted, Pluto, <laughs> yeah. it also means you're reading the wrong horoscope. So, it's, you know, if you're going to so make those decisions, get it together, everyone. Right. Um. The second thing is to look up. I mean, I just want people to look up and sort of ponder what they can see and what's out there and kind of maybe spark some curiosity. Like I told you that I think everything started for me with the moon. And I sort of realized that just only this year, because my mom, we have this recording of me when I was like 18 months where we would sort of talk at the end of the day and she was recording and she was pointing out the moon and it was one of my first words oh, and oh that's so awesome and then I was talking with my therapist about um implicit and explicit memories and this whole idea that the moon is something that I don't remember doing that with her but it very well could have just pretty much planted this seed of like I look at the moon and mm -hmm. then that kind of took off and turned into this like love of space that I have and it's also, every time I look at the moon, it's a very comforting feeling, too. And that's probably because it takes me back to that safe moment with my mom when I was little. Yeah, that's magnificent. It's just such a beautiful story. Thank you so much, Summer, for joining us. This was amazing. Thanks for joining us and talking about all this wacky stuff. Um, and pleasure. sharing your knowledge with us, which is immense and awesome. And hopefully it just sparks people to want more knowledge. So everybody can have knowledge. Um, Summer, tell us about, is it called Astronomy on Tap? Can people go and see you there? Or is that just for astronomers? Two, two ways to answer that question. I'm not necessarily there, unfortunately. Right now I'm temporarily in California, um, and but I try and help from afar sometimes. But right now it's being um, run by a couple other astronomers. It takes place at the Way Station in Brooklyn. And it is absolutely for non-astronomers. It is talks about astronomy in bars with a lot of puns, gifts, profanity, etc. So everyone should get something out of it. That's awesome. Super fun. And you, everyone who hears this should also just check astronomy on tap.com or org or something. I'm going to get in trouble for that. But because there's ones all over the country and even the world, there's a, there's like one in Chile and one in China somewhere. And yeah, 
That's awesome. So you may have one in your town. We'll put it in show notes so you can check in your town. And then you should also check out Sartorialist. Yes. And so the Twitter handle is actually just my name. So summer underscore ash. Thank you so much for joining us, Summer. It was great to have you. Oh, I'm so glad I found you guys. So thank you so much. Well, thank you to Summer for joining us. Thanks to all of you for sticking with us. Um, Please uh, remember to subscribe and like and give us reviews on the platform that you listen to to us to. Tell your friends about us. Um, You're always welcome to tweet at us at Faded Mates or Instagram us at Faded Mates Pod. Hashtag Faded Mates Pod everywhere. Send us emails, Jen at FadedMates.net, Sarah at FadedMates.net. We um, save a lot of your thoughts and tweets and Instagrams uh, for special episodes, which will come in the future, um, where we'll talk about your ideas. So we'll see you next time on Faded Mates. right here on Earth to blow up uh, Mount Everest, the North Pole, etc. We're Earthlings. Let's blow up Earth things.